This is the American Tapestry Project, where we seek to weave America's many stories into a tapestry of American possibilities. Welcome back, fellow weavers, and if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the American Tapestry Project. I'm Andrew Roth, a scholar-in-residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Today, today on the American Tapestry Project, we're going to explore patriotism. More particularly, we're going to hear what America's poets have had to say about patriotism and about love of country. A quick note, however, before we begin, as always, remember, Signals a Sidebar will explore. Today, we're going to look at brief biographies of several American poets. We'll learn a bit about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Walt Whitman, Langston Hughes, Julia Ward Howe, and maybe one or two more. So, today, signals a brief biographical aside. Patriotism, love of country, what does it mean? Sir Walter Scott, in his The Lay, Lay lay means song, Sir Walter Scott, in his The Lay of the Last Minstrel, asked, Breathes there the man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, This is my own, my native land. For Scott, patriotism is love of one's land, by which he meant country or nation. But for Scott, the country or nation was intimately identified with the specific land, a specific place. Is American patriotism a patriotism rooted in the love of land? Or is it something else? Or is it both? How does patriotism resonate in our current cultural disputes? Who is a patriot and who is not? For two years now on the American Tapestry Project, we've been exploring the story of America, seeking those things Americans love in common. As frequent listeners, as you fellow weavers know, my take on the issue is that Woven out of the American tapestry's four main threads, there are two macro stories competing to be the American story. To refresh your memory, the main threads are freedom's story, freedom's fault lines, tales of race and gender, the American dream, or as it is sometimes called, the American success ethic, and the immigrant's tale. These four threads weave together in different ways in what I call the fusion thread. But in the fusion thread, we find two stories competing to be the story. One is an essentialist story that says America is a fixed entity that cannot change. It says America's core values of freedom, equality, and opportunity, it says those values only apply to a subset of Americans. It is an exclusive society, a white, Christian, patriarchal society in which all other segments of the larger American society must defer. The other story is a protean story, a story of an America true to its founding ideals, a story which seeks to include all Americans, all Americans regardless of ethnicity, creed, or gender, in the unfolding American story. It seeks to perfect democratic self-government while, at the same time, increasing the inclusiveness of the we in America's founding documents. Regardless of which story they support, adherents of either will tell you they are patriots, Disconcertingly, the argument reminds me of a line in Lincoln's second inaugural when he said of the 19th century Civil War's adversaries, both read the same Bible, 
and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. Well, in our current discontents, some on either side do invoke the Bible, but most, either right or left, make a more secular appeal. On a tangible level, they appeal to the U.S. Constitution and the rights it grants or doesn't. On a more tangible, almost ethereal level, they appeal to America, the idea of America embedded in the American creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Right or left, they make patriotic claims. Right or left, they claim to be a patriot. So what's a patriot? Samuel Johnson famously said that patriotism was the last refuge of a scoundrel, by which he meant false patriotism used to disguise, used to disguise self-aggrandizing behavior. Sound familiar? More to our interests, patriotism's simplest, most direct definition means love for or devotion to one's country. It can easily slide into a synonym for nationalism, but actually they mean subtly different things. One, patriotism is an open-eyed love of country. Nationalism, in contrast, asserts the value of one's nation over any other. A malleable word, just like some people's patriotism. Delving deeper, one discovers that the meaning of patriotism splinters into multiple meanings. James Bryce, for example, said, Patriotism consists not in waving the flag, but in striving that our country shall be righteous as well as strong. Theodore Roosevelt opined, I am an American, free-born and free-bred, where I acknowledge no man as my superior except for his own worth, or as my inferior except for his own demerit. Frederick Douglass said, The life of the nation is secure only while the nation is honest, truthful, and virtuous. Condoleezza Rice spoke to both the American dream and freedom story when she said, The essence of America, that which really unites us, is not ethnicity or nationality or religion. It is an idea, and what an idea it is, that you can come from humble circumstances and do great things. Ralph Waldo Emerson agreed. Emerson said, America, America is another name for opportunity. What did the founders say about liberty and patriotism? James Madison said, A spirit of liberty and patriotism animates all degrees of men. But he didn't define patriotism. He also said, Equal laws protecting equal rights, the best guarantee of loyalty and love of country. Alexander Hamilton came close to commenting on patriotism in a way a 21st century person might think of it when he said, there is a certain enthusiasm in liberty that makes human nature rise above itself in acts of bravery and heroism. George Washington, understanding as did Samuel Johnson, that false patriots, opportunists, and people of low design and great ambition, as Hamilton described the greatest threat to America, Washington understood that such people will cloak themselves in patriotic posturing. Washington understood when he said, Guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism. What is pretended patriotism? In its most common form, it pretends America is perfect. Behind that pretension usually lurks an attempt to take someone's rights away from them. False patriotism denies the truth of Alexis de Tocqueville's understanding that the greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. 
It's what World War II hero and 1972 presidential candidate George McGovern meant. It's what McGovern meant when he said, The highest patriotism is not a blind acceptance of official policy, but a love of one's country deep enough to call her to a higher plane. It's what Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said, One cannot worship the false god of nationalism and the god of Christianity at the same time. That bears repeating, because there's a lot of people today who either don't understand that or understand it and disagree. But I think King was on to something. It's what Martin Luther King meant when he said, One cannot worship the false god of nationalism and the god of Christianity at the same time. Patriotism is what Theodore Roosevelt, to quote Roosevelt yet again, it's what Theodore Roosevelt alluded to when he said, Patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president or any other public official, save exactly to the degree in which he himself stands by the country. Teddy continued, It is patriotic to support him, the president. It is patriotic to support him insofar as he efficiently serves the country. It is unpatriotic not to oppose him to the exact extent that by inefficiency or otherwise, he fails in his duty to the country. In either event, Roosevelt concluded, it is unpatriotic not to tell the truth, whether about the president or anyone else. It is unpatriotic not to tell the truth. Yet another line that bears repeating. It is unpatriotic not to tell the truth. Speaking of truth-telling, President Ronald Reagan's chief speechwriter, Peggy Noonan, said, Patriotism, patriotism involves the following. What we need most right now, at this moment, is a kind of patriotic grace, a grace that takes the long view, apprehends the moment we're in, comes up with ways of dealing with it, and eschews the politically cheap and manipulative, that admits affection and respect, that encourages them, that acknowledges that the small things that divide us are not worthy of the moment, that agrees that the things that can be done to ease the stresses we feel as a nation should be encouraged, while those that encourage our cohesion as a nation should be supported. By Peggy Noonan's definition, Lynn Cheney is a person of deep and gracious patriotism, a truth-teller. Or, as Detocqueville, Theodore Roosevelt, Peggy Noonan, and, I think, Ronald Reagan himself would agree, true patriotism involves an open-eyed love of country, a love that sees America for what it is, while, at the same time, being true to its core values, an America that has both the potential and the grace to continually perfect itself, to continually move towards that more perfect union of which the Constitution speaks. Today on the American Tapestry, let's hear what America's poets, those unacknowledged legislators of the world, let's hear what the poets have had to say about American patriotism. So, in a graciously patriotic vein, I ask, what have the poets said about an open-eyed love of country. A complicated woman, both ahead of her time and rooted in it, Sarah Josepha Hale was one of the most influential women of the 19th century. From her position as editor, she'd have said editrice, from her position as editor of Godet's Ladies Book, Hale defined American culture in the early and middle 19th century. 
We met her back in March in episode number 20. Uh, it, it aired just this past March, March 2022. And of course, you can find it on WQLN, NPR, and other podcast sites. Well, as we said back then, and we'll briefly review today, one of Hale's great goals was to create a distinctly American culture separate from America's English origins. She labored for decades to build an American culture binding, binding Americans together in a common love of liberty. An opponent of slavery, after the Civil War, she sought to heal the divide. What did Hale have to say about patriotism? Although she never mentions the word patriotism, like Sir Walter Scott, she clearly identifies it with a deep love of country. Here is Sarah, Josepha Hale's My Country. America, my own dear land. Oh, tis a lovely land to me. I thank my God that I was born where man is free. Our land, it is a glorious land, and wide it spreads from sea to sea, and sisters' states in union join, and all are free. And equal laws we all obey, to kings we never bend the knee. We may not own no Lord but God, where all are free." We've lofty hills and sunny vales and streams that roll to either sea, and through this large and varied land alike we're free. You hear the sounds of healthful toil and youth's gay shout and childhood's glee, and everyone in safety dwells, and all are free. We're brothers all from south to north. One bond will draw us to agree. We love this country of our birth. We love the free. We love the name of Washington, I lisp it on my father's knee, and we shall ne'er forget his name while we are free. My land, my own dear native land, thou art a lovely land to me. I bless my God that I was born where man is free. Perhaps more open-eyed, working more than a half a century after Hale, Claude McKay also sang of his patriotic love of America. Who was Claude McKay? As a brief biography at Poets.org, the website of the American Academy of Poets, as that website notes, born in Jamaica in 1889, McKay was educated by his older brother, by an older brother who possessed a library of English novels, poetry, and other works. After publishing Songs of Jamaica, a book of poems in which he recorded in dialect his impressions of black life in Jamaica, McKay came to America and briefly attended Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute before studying agriculture at Kansas State University. After publishing several sonnets in 1917, McKay used that poetic form to comment about social and political concerns in the America, in the America of his time from the the perspective of a black man. Using passionate language, he also wrote about other topics, including his Jamaican home and romantic love. McKay, as did many American artists at the time, during the 1920s became interested in communism. He traveled to Russia and France. In France, he met Edna St. Vincent Millay and Sinclair Lewis. Returning to America in 1934, McKay settled in Harlem. He lost faith in communism and turned his attention to other spiritual and political leaders. He ultimately converted to Catholicism. McKay died in 1948, but his achievements set the tone for the Harlem Renaissance, that flowering of black art and literature during the 1920s. Respected by younger black poets, he inspired Langston Hughes, who we'll meet later in the program. McKay was very, very influential. 
perhaps more open-eyed and working more than a half century after Hale, McKay also sang of his patriotic love of America. In his America, evoking Shelley's Ozymandias, McKay, while reaffirming his love of America and American culture, foretells a fading future unless America can right its wrongs. Here's Claude McKay's America, read by Tobias Cropper of Yale University's Beinecke Library. America by Claude McKay Although she feeds me bread of bitterness and sinks into my throat her tiger's tooth, stealing my breaths of life, I will confess, I love this cultured hell that tests my youth. Her vigor flows like tides into my blood, giving me strength erect against her hate. Her bigness sweeps my being like a flood. Yet, as a rebel fronts a king in state, I stand within her walls with not a shred of terror, malice, not a word of jeer. Darkly I gaze into the days ahead and see her might and granite wonders there. Beneath the touch of time's unerring hand, like priceless treasures sinking in the sand. Hale, a very sophisticated woman, sings a simple, unsophisticated song of love of country. McKay, well, no one would have ever called him simple or unsophisticated. McKay sings a complex song of love for a land, for a land that seems not to love him. Speaking of love, on a major north-south Mill Creek road sits a lawn festooned with flags and bunting and a sign exhorting, America, love it or leave it. Speaking of love it or leave it, how is our patriotic landscaper more American than Langston Hughes who sang, I too, sing America? Who was Langston Hughes? Again, as his biography at the American Academy of Poets available online at poets.org recounts, although neighboring Cleveland claims him, Langston Hughes was born in 1901 in Joplin, Missouri. After his parents divorced, he was raised by his grandmother until he was 13, when he moved to Illinois to live with his mother and her husband before the family before the family eventually settled in Cleveland. After high school, Hughes spent a year in Mexico with his father before doing another year at Columbia University. To support himself, he worked as a cook and a seaman. In the early 1920s, Hughes published a book of poetry, The Weary Blues, with an introduction by Harlem Renaissance patron Carl Van Vechten. It received mixed reviews. Claiming Paul Lawrence Dunbar, Carl Sandburg, and Walt Whitman as his primary influences, Hughes' reputation lies on his insightful portrayals of black life in America from the 1920s to the 1960s. His most famous poem is A Dream Deferred, in which he rhetorically asked and answered, What happens to a dream deferred? It explodes. As the Academy of American Poets says, his life and work were enormously important in shaping the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. Unlike other notable black poets of the period, 
Hughes refused to differentiate between his personal experience and the common experience of black America. He wanted to tell the stories of his people in ways that reflected their actual culture, including their love of music, laughter, and language itself. The critic Donald Gibson noted that Hughes differed from most of his predecessors among black poets in that he addressed his poetry to the people, specifically to black people. During the 20s, when most American poets turned inward, writing obscure and esoteric poetry to an ever-shrinking audience of readers, think Ezra Pound, Hughes was turning outward, using language and themes and attitudes and ideas familiar to anyone who had the ability to simply read. Until the time of his death, he spread his message humorously, though always seriously, to audiences throughout the country. It's possible that Langston Hughes read his poetry to more people than any other American poet. Here is a rare recording of Hughes himself reading, I Too, Sing America. I Too, Sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful we are and be ashamed. I too am America. Leaving not an option, where would they go and why should they? Many poets sing of their native land with great tenderness and open-eyed love, as Carl Sandburg did in Good Night. Most people, even those who don't particularly like poetry, recognize Sandburg from middle school and high school English classes in which his plain language and everyday topics were once a staple. Perhaps you recall fog. The fog comes on little cat feet. It sits looking over harbor and city on silent haunches and then moves on. Most memorably, you might recall his love song to his adopted hometown of Chicago, of which he sang, Chicago, hog butcher for the world, toolmaker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling city of the big shoulders. A champion of the common man, Sandberg was part of that early 20th century flourishing of Midwestern art. He was an editorial writer for the Chicago Daily News at about the same time Harriet Monroe began publishing, at about the same time Harriet Monroe began publishing what would become America's leading poetry journal, simply titled Poetry. It continues until today. It was Monroe who encouraged Sandberg to continue to write in his free verse, Whitman-like style using homely speech, which distinguished him from his more literary and more pretentious peers. In addition to his poetry, Sandberg is known as one of the great biographers of Abraham Lincoln. His six-volume biography was, for most of the 20th century, it was considered definitive. Sandberg's Good Night projects its patriotism through a simple love of country. Here is a reading of Sandberg's Good Night from Lack's Art, a YouTube channel dedicated to the art of relaxing with art, videos, photos, music, sounds, poems, stories, and other forms of art. Here is Relax Art with Sandberg's Good Night. Good night. 
Many ways to spell good night. Fireworks that appear on the 4th of July spell it with red wheels and yellow spokes. They fizz in the air, touch the water, and quit. Rockets make a trajectory of gold and blue and then go out. Railroad trains at night spell with a smokestack mushrooming a white pillar. Steamboats turn a curve in the Mississippi, crying in a baritone that crosses lowland cotton fields to a razorback hill. It is easy to spell good night. Many ways to spell good night. If Sandberg sang of America, who sang of America is a real place greater than Walt Whitman? Whitman famously said in the preface to the first edition of his Leaves of Grass, Whitman said, the United States themselves were the greatest poem. Long considered one of America's most important poets, Whitman sang of the protean American story, that story of an increasingly inclusive America, of an America in pursuit of what? in the 19th century seen pure possibility. We'll hear about that at the end of today's program when we look at Whitman's I Hear America Singing. But for now, I want to look at Whitman's Open-Eyed Love of Country Inn by Blue Ontario's Shores. Written just after the Civil War had ended, Whitman sang of peace and hope for a national future. But he ended it with an open-eyed and patriotic look at America's shortcomings. By Blue Ontario Shores begins, By Blue Ontario Shore, as I mused of these warlike days and of peace returned, and the dead that returned no more, a phantom gigantic superb with stern visage accosted me. Chant me the poem, it said, that comes from the soul of America. Chant me the carol of victory, and strike up the marches of Libertad, marches more powerful yet, and sing me before you go the song of the throes of democracy. Democracy, the destined conqueror, yet treacherous lip smiles everywhere and death and infidelity at every step. These states are the amplest poem. Here is not merely a nation, but a teeming nation of nations. Here the doings of men correspond with the broadest doings of day and night. Here is what moves in magnificent masses careless of particulars. Here are the roughs, beards, friendliness, combativeness, the soul loves. Here the flowing trains, here the crowds, equality, diversity, the soul loves. That was Whitman, accomplished poet and former poet laureate of the United States. Robert Pinsky read by Blue Ontario Shores for PBS News on July 4, 2001. An interesting date predates 9-11. In any event, Pinsky explains the poem, and Pinsky reads from the end. I just read to you from the beginning, but Pinsky reads from the end, giving a great example of open-eyed love of country. Let's listen to a recording of that two-minute visit between Robert Pinsky and Walt Whitman 21 years ago. Here is Pinsky on Whitman. A problem with expressing patriotism is the tendency to leave out the negative so that the patriotic feeling seems false or blind. Walt Whitman, in the concluding section of By Blue Ontario's Shore, deals with that difficulty by listing what he will not shirk. 
Whitman's list of what he will not shirk remains an attractive agenda and can inspire a credible patriotism, one that means to include, as Whitman says, all. Here for the 4th of July are Walt Whitman's lines. Oh, I see flashing that this America is only you and me. Its power, weapons, testimony are you and me. Its crimes, likes, thefts, defections are you and me. Its Congress is you and me. The officers, capitals, armies, ships are you and me. Its endless gestations of new states are you and me. The war, that war so bloody and grim, the war I will henceforth forget was you and me. Natural and artificial are you and me. Freedom, language, poems, employments are you and me. Past, present, future are you and me. I dare not shirk any part of myself, not any part of America, good or bad, not to build for that which builds for mankind, not to balance ranks, complexions, creeds, and the sexes, not to justify science nor the march of equality, nor to feed the arrogant blood of the brawn beloved of time. And a little further on, I am for those who walk abreast with the whole earth, who inaugurate one to inaugurate all. The Civil War spawned a number of great and patriotic American poems and songs, possibly none greater than Julia Ward Howe's The Battle Hymn of the Republic. Who was Julia Ward Howe, one might ask? Well, she was a writer, lecturer, abolitionist, and suffragist who not only wrote arguably America's most famous hymn, but also co-founded the American Woman Suffrage Association. Born in 1819, Howe was from a wealthy family. In the Boston society of her day, she knew Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and a host of other luminaries. A woman ahead of her times, she suffered a troubled marriage with a husband who preferred her at home and not out in the public eye as an accomplished poet and author. Both an abolitionist and a suffragette, she broke with Susan B. Anthony and others over the issue of the 15th Amendment granting the vote to black men, but not to women. Howe thought the women should wait their moment, because the cause of the freedmen took precedence. She became a peace advocate and made one of the earliest proposals for a Mother's Day holiday, a holiday which, in her vision, women would advance the cause of peace by dissuading their sons from engaging in war. She conceived the battle hymn of the Republic as new lyrics to an old tune, John Brown's Body. She later wrote that she recalled awakening in the morning twilight, and as the dawn broke, the poem's lines began to twine themselves in her mind. She said she told herself she must get up and write them down before they slipped away and she forgot. She sprang out of bed and with an old stump of a pencil, scrawled the verses down almost without looking at the paper. The Atlantic Monthly... They paid her $5 for the publication rights. The lines are among the most famous in the American language. They inspired the northern troops and the holy cause of preserving the Union. You certainly recall them. You almost certainly have heard them, who knows, innumerable times. 
Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, his trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Rather than me reciting it, here with the proper emotional resonance is the Mormon Tabernacle Choir singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic's first two stanzas in chorus. Some poems, well rooted in place, speak of the idea of America. While America is clearly a place, it, it is also an idea. The idea of liberty, freedom, equality, and opportunity in a democratic society governed by the people for the people. Whitman clearly sings of that American patriotism. Who else did? Well, for one, poet, essayist, and philosopher, Ralph Waldo Emerson was a leading light in the early 19th century American Renaissance and the Transcendentalist movement. Friend of Thoreau, Fuller, and just about every noted American writer of the era, Emerson is probably most familiar as the author of On Self-Reliance as America's Greatest Virtue. He was also an apostle of positivity, that optimistic, can-do spirit that once was America's great gift to the world. In his most famous poem, Emerson sang of that selfless patriotism that created America. Written in 1837 and first sung on July 4th that year, Emerson's 
Concord Hymn celebrates the completion of a monument honoring 1775's Battles of Lexington and Concord, which, of course, began the American Revolution. Poems sings of a place, it sings of bravery, but most of all, it sings of an idea. Its most famous line, the shot heard round the world, has become part of the American lexicon. Here is Emerson's Concord Hymn, read by former President Bill Clinton. I'd like to share Ralph Waldo Emerson's Concord Hymn, a poem he wrote to commemorate the completion of the Battle Monument, to honor the fallen heroes of the battles of Lexington and Concord in the Revolutionary War, and to invoke the enduring spirit of patriotism that inspires us down to the present day. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled. Here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. The foe long since in silence slept, alike the conqueror in silence sleeps. In time the ruined bridge has swept down the dark stream which seaward creeps. On this green bank, by this soft stream, we set today a votive stone that memory may their deed redeem when, like our sires, our sons are gone. Spirit that made those heroes dare to die and leave their children free, bid time and nature gently spare the shaft we raise. Emerson also asked, what makes a nation strong? His answer, his answer was not gold, nor a daunting military, nor pride. Well, let's hear what Emerson himself said in A Nation's Strength. What makes a nation's pillars high and its foundations strong? What makes it mighty to defy the foes that round it throng? It is not gold, its kingdoms grand go down in battle shock. Its shafts are laid on sinking sand not on abiding rock. Is it the sword? Ask the red dust of empires passed away. The blood has turned their stones to rust, their glory to decay. And is it pride? Ah, that bright crown has seemed to nations sweet, but God has struck its luster down in ashes at his feet. Not gold, but only men, today we would say people, not gold, but only men can make a people great and strong. Men who for truth and honor's sake stand fast and suffer long. Brave men who dare to work while others sleep, who dare while others fly. They build a nation's pillars deep and lift them to the sky. So, in Emerson's take, it's people who make a nation strong, just as the protean American story asserts. America's great strength is its people drawn from all the corners of the earth. As President Ronald Reagan said in his last speech, in his last speech from the Oval Office, Reagan said, put immigration at the center of American exceptionalism. Reagan said, we lead the world because we are unique among nations. We draw our people, our strength from every corner, from every country of the world. Who was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow? 
We met him in episode 24, but it bears repeating. So let's revisit, let's revisit Longfellow. If Emerson sang of the heroic vein in American patriotism present at its creation, then no one sang it better than Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow wrote some of America's greatest patriotic poems. Once America's most popular poet, a staple of middle school and high school English classes, Longfellow has fallen out of fashion. Perhaps, perhaps undeservedly, for among his shorter poems are many fine meditations on the human condition. I mentioned earlier that Sarah Josepha Hale attempted to build a distinctly American culture. It was the chief cause and ambition of American artists, novelists, and poets in the early 19th century. They wanted to create an American culture distinct from the English culture from whom they had just rebelled. Think Nathaniel Hawthorne, James Fenimore Cooper, and Washington Irving. Irving, in his Knickerbocker tales, not only created such classics as Rip Van Winkle, but he also practically invented the American way of Christmas. But no one, no one was more important in building American culture and its sense of heroic origins than Longfellow. In a series of poems, lines from which almost every American knows the echoes, but not the source. In poems such as The Courtship of Miles Standish, The Song of Hiawatha, Paul Revere's Ride, Evangeline, A Tale of Acadie, The Building of the Ship, and The Village Blacksmith, while in all those poems Longfellow created the bedrock of America's shared cultural heritage. Longfellow was the most popular poet of the 19th century, the century in which poets were the age's rock stars. Longfellow was a rock star. A fan of Sir Walter Scott's romances, Think Ivanhoe, and Washington Irving's sketchbook, Longfellow began to publish while still in college. In 1835, he accepted a professorship from Harvard, where he remained for the rest of his life. He began to write and publish poetry. In 1842, his ballads and other poems, containing such favorites as The Wreck of the Hesperus and The Village Blacksmith, swept the nation. He also published anti-slavery poetry in his collection of poems, Poems on Slavery. But Longfellow, Longfellow was a storyteller, and the story he wanted to tell was the story of America. His first success was 1847's Evangeline, a sentimental tale it tells of two lovers, Evangeline and Gabriel, separated when the dastardly British expel the Acadians from what is now Nova Scotia, but was once called Acadia. It was the dispersal of the French that landed many in New England and, of course, New Orleans, creating Cajun culture. The lovers are only reunited years later as Gabriel lies dying. Longfellow left teaching in 1854 to pursue a career as a full-time poet. As I said, he became a rock star of 19th century American poetry. His first big hit, if you will, was The Song of Hiawatha. It was immensely popular. It made Hiawatha and the image of the noble savage part of the century's cultural wallpaper. Hiawatha is an Ojibwa Native American who, after various mythic feats, becomes his people's leader and marries Minnehaha before departing for the Isles of the Blessed. Longfellow's next great success was The Courtship of Miles Standish, set in the year 1621 in the Plymouth Colony, with a fierce Indian war as its background, the poem focuses on the love triangle of Miles Standish, Priscilla Mullins, and John Alden, 
Bumbling, feuding roommates, Miles Standish and John Alden vie for the affections of the beautiful Priscilla Mullins. The independent-minded woman utters the famous retort, Why don't you speak for yourself, John? Longfellow celebrated the stoic labor that undergirds society as in the opening of the village blacksmith. Under the spreading chestnut tree the village smithy stands. The smith, a mighty man is he with large and sinewy hands, and the muscles of his brawny arms are strong as iron bands. Longfellow's great celebration of the Union of the United States was his The Building of the Ship, in which, using the metaphor of building a ship, he sang of the power of union over confederacy and the great hope the United States shone to the world. Here are some lines from The Building of the Ship. Thou, too, sail on, O ship of state. Sail on, O union, strong and great. Humanity, with all its fears, with all the hopes of future years, is hanging breathless on thy fate. In spite of rock and tempest's roar, in spite of false lights on the shore, sail on, nor fear to breast the sea. Our hopes, our hearts, are all with thee. Our hearts, our hopes, our prayers, our tears, our faith triumphant o'er our fears, all, all are with thee, all are with thee. Longfellow's 1863 Tales of a Wayside Inn demonstrates his narrative gift. Its Paul Revere's ride became a national hit. As every schoolchild knows, it tells of the midnight ride of Paul Revere to warn the colonists that the British are coming, the British are coming. Told by the tavern keeper of the Wayside Inn, Paul Revere's ride created an American legend. Although not completely accurate, there really was a Paul Revere, he really did warn the countryside of the British incursion. There was also another writer named Dawes, but Longfellow left him out. Too bad for Dawes. Maybe in a future episode we'll tell the accurate story of the midnight ride. But... For now, who has not heard the line, one if by land, two if by sea, without really understanding what it means? Here is a marvelous recital of the poem by Jim Clark, recreating Longfellow telling the tale of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Thank you.
American poetry enjoys a rich trove of patriotic poems celebrating America's many virtues, ranging from the simple spirit of Hale's, My Country, to the more nuanced tones of McKay's singing of his sometimes unrequited love for a land, for a land that remains his home, to Sandberg's earthier embrace, to Emerson and Longfellow extolling American freedom and the patriots who won it. But, in the context of the American Tapestry Project's The Fusion Thread's celebration of the inclusionary American story, that story of America's experiment in self-government while all the while redefining in a more and more inclusive manner who Americans are in, well, in that story, several poems reign supreme. If one wants to make America great again, then one could do scarcely better than to listen to Langston Hughes' exhortations in Let America Be America Again. Originally published in Esquire magazine in July 1936, Hughes sings of his love of country, although that country frequently denied him the rights it promised others. In Let America Be America, Hughes sang, Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain, seeking a home where he himself is free. America was never America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme that any man may be crushed by one above. It was never America to me. Oh, let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. Oh, yes, I say it plain. America was never America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be, out of the rack and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot of graft and stealth and lies, we the people must redeem the land, the mines, the plants, the rivers, the mountains and the endless plain, all, all the stretch of these great green states, and make America, America again. No one sang of love of country better than Catherine Lee Bates, who doubtless would be chagrined to know that 130-plus years later, her status as a gay woman would, be, would still be problematic. Yet, it was Bates who sang America the Beautiful. The poem had several iterations, as Bates tamed some of the oblique criticism of American values in her first version. But its final iteration sings a better song of America than our official anthem. An opinion, by the way, that finds support at all points on the political spectrum, even in these divisive times. In these conflicted times, the healing balm of Bates's lines merit hearing in their entirety. America the Beautiful. Everyone, I'm sure every one of you listening, knows the first two stanzas. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plain. America. America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. You know those, you hear them all the time. But not many are as familiar with Bates's open-eyed love of country in stanzas three through seven before returning to the crowning second stanza. Here are those stanzas three through seven. 
O beautiful for pilgrim feet, whose stern impassioned stress a thoroughfare for freedom beat across the wilderness. America, America, God mend thy every flaw, confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. O beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved, and mercy more than life. America, America, my God, thy gold refined, till all success be nobleness and every gain divine. O beautiful for patriot dream, that sees beyond the years thine alabaster cities gleam undimmed by human tears. America, America, God shed his grace on thee and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Better than me, here is Pete Seeger whistling and singing America the Beautiful. sang of America's physical beauty and its flaws redeemed by liberty, then Emma Lazarus sang of the American promise, that beacon of liberty welcoming all the world's people to enjoy the benefits of liberty, equality, and opportunity. Lazarus composed it in 1883 as a donation to an art auction to raise funds for a pedestal for the Statue of Liberty. Twenty years later, in 1903, engraved on a bronze plaque, it was installed on one of the pedestal's inner walls. It welcomes all to the land of the free. It encapsulates the protean story of an inclusive America as it sings, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe three, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. Although in our time, some, like former presidential assistant Stephen Miller, ironically, grandson of immigrants, one it erased, Lazarus's poem speaks, it speaks of the spirit that makes America great, the new, the new Colossus. The new Colossus, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, 
her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. But no patriots sang of the glory of that all-inclusive people in We the People better than Walt Whitman who heard America singing in its promise in the daily lives of ordinary people. Whitman's I Hear America Singing I hear America singing the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be, blithe and strong, the carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam, the mason singing his as he makes ready for work or leaves off work, the boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat, the deckhand singing on the steamboat deck, the shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench, the hatter singing as he stands, the woodcutter's song, the plowboy's on his way in the morning or at noon intermission or at sundown, the delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work or of the girl sewing or washing, each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else, the day what belongs to the day, at night the party of young fellows, robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. So, yes, we've just heard there are great patriotic poems, poems demonstrating with an open-eyed love of America that no one, regardless of how many flags they wrap themselves in, no one has a lock on patriotism. Love of Country Love of country is a nonpartisan thing, sung best by those challenging America to be all it can be, by singing of an open-eyed love for America and its inclusionary story, welcoming the world's people to share in the blessings, to share in the blessings of liberty, equality, and opportunity for all. The American Tapestry rich in its many threads and stories, challenging 21st century Americans to remember our ideals and to live up to the better angels of our natures. I'm Andrew Roth, scholar in residence at the Jefferson Educational Society in Erie, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening. Past episodes can be found on the WQLN website, NPR One, Spotify, Google, and other podcast sites. Comments and questions can be sent to me at Roth at jeserie.org. That's Roth at jeserie.org. Thank you. <laughs>